Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Proiso and the Dalit Slavin to our end of year review pod. We started this year with only worries of Brexit, but uh, little did we know how much the world would change this year. Joining me today is Richard Martin. Hello, Richard. Hey, Matt. And we've also got Kerry Davis. Hello, Kerry. Good evening, Matthew. Good evening, Rich. And good evening to you, sir. May I say what a lovely Christmas hat you're wearing. So, as I said, we started this year worried about Brexit. How worried are you about Brexit now, Kerry? I, I've never been a big worrier of Brexit. I'm not a supporter of it, but I also uh, am not as concerned as many are. I think we're going to lose an awful lot. And I think what always concerned me about Brexit was the ability of the UK government to carry out the promises which led to the Brexit vote. And I think we're in that position now where everything I think a lot of us could see was going to come to pass is going to come to pass. And I think the ramifications of that are going to be quite uh, quite worrying for a lot of sectors, a lot of people. There's going to be a lot of turmoil. It's very hard to, to really pinpoint you know, where that's going to really hit. I think we know from the media which sectors are going to struggle uh, and have to find new ways of working and coping. And will the UK government step in? But um, like life will go on for, for many of us. But it, it's very, very difficult for those where this is going to have a real sharp end impact. We've seen, though, in the last few days, haven't we, huge queues on motorways with lorries going up and down motorways, both in Kent and in North Wales and in Anasmon. Do you not think that will have a real impact on people if they can't get access to their food? I know a bit of this are, are COVID-related too, but they sort of mirror what could happen if there's no deal. Yeah, and, and this is what I mean. I think those at the sharp end, there will be an impact. I, I think for an awful lot of society, things will just continue with some limitations and restrictions. But this is what I mean around my worries about Brexit. It wasn't so much about the vote we actually left. It was about the ability of the UK government to follow through on the promises and the deal which was suggested we would have. And what are we now, four and a half years down the line, and we're still waiting for the the trade deal, the lorry park in Kent, all these kind of things. It, it was exactly this area of actually delivering any kind of Brexit which worried me more than the actual issue of leaving the, the EU. What about you, Rich? What's your take on the Brexit year and the year ahead? It's been so easy to forget that we, you know, Brexit finished, you know, Brexit as, a, as an event took place in January this year. And I think your and you know analysis there is completely correct for the people who are most vulnerable and who have the most to lose it's going to be a very bumpy six months i mean it's no coincidence that we have arguably the least capable um, bunch of ministers in the uk government that we've had for decades i mean obviously chris grading aside you know they are committed brexiteers they were always the ultras they they're there as a you know they've been appointed on the basis of loyalty so they're going to push through with it in the way that they want to do it no matter what and you know here we are what less than a week or just about a week away from the end of the transition period most people still think there'll be some kind of um, but it doesn't look like it's going to be anywhere near as comprehensive as to uh, ameliorate the, the worst outcomes but the kind of people that are going to do fine out of Brexit are the kind of people who are in government in Westminster so you know they're not going to change course and I think there's definitely going to be pain there's going to be a lot of pain for a lot of people at the start of next year I fear a lot for agriculture in Wales but I think the the real worry is the kind of intangible long-term thing which is okay so when we get out of the transition period what is going to happen then we've still got another 
three years, three and a bit years of a pretty hardline government that is apparently intent on, you know, wide scale deregulation still has um, an agenda that is you know, unchanged, arguably, from the late 1980s. In fact, I think I heard Matthew Paris say on the radio a little while ago that Boris is essentially going to finish um, the job for Margaret Thatcher. He's going to complete her unfinished business. And I think that that actually is more worrying for, you know, for people. It's going to be difficult in the short term, but I think in the long term, I think that there's a question about what the future of the UK, in whatever form that takes, is going to be. And I think that's for people who care a lot about the environment, people who care a lot about social and uh, economic rights of individuals and groups of people, I think it's going to be hard. Um, I think it's going to be a difficult time, particularly as Labour continues to flail. Uh, speaking of which, Matt, uh, I guess uh, on that note, that was an involuntary link uh, over to you, mate. Thank you, mate. <laughs> um, I didn't ask myself a question, so I can, I can ignore that and completely move on. Just, just uh, do what a politician would do. Just pick up and answer the question you want to answer. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think you're completely right. I'm really worried. And we'll get into this a bit more when we talk about what's happened on the Devo constitutional front a bit later. But I have no hope, really, that the UK government isn't going to steamroll the rest in terms of um, common frameworks, decisions, etc. It'll make agriculture and trade and everything else so much harder for Wales and will really weaken the power of the Welsh government overall. Brexit has always been a conduit for, for something else. It's been a conduit for vast neoliberalisation of the UK and centralisation of power back into the hands of the few in Westminster. And I'm deeply worried, especially so when we are what we're at the time of recording about 10 days away from the transition period ending with no legal mechanism to extend the transition period. We are seeing how bad coronavirus and don't worry, we'll get into coronavirus, how badly coronavirus is spiking now all across the UK. That in its in of itself is difficult enough for a competent government to deal with, let alone this incompetent one, and how they have to deal with that plus Brexit, plus I'm sure many people have seen potentially impending uh, teacher strikes in England as well with all the big teaching unions kicking off because in England they're going to have to, uh, they're asking teachers to carry out COVID testing on children for no extra pay. So all these issues together are hard enough for a competent government to do and this one gives me no faith that they'll do it any of them well. Yeah, really quite worried. And I know lots of my friends have been stockpiling food and medicines for quite some, some time. And I think that this week and these last few days, given the, the blockade, even though that is, yeah, as I said previously, COVID related, that will give them no faith that everything is going to be hunky-dory in, in January. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to 10 years of non-stop mackerel and scallops. Uh, that's going to be great. Well, as a vegetarian uh, living in Britain, I'm sure I will get very comfortable with lots of homegrown British produce. We're going for the we're going for an uplifting, optimistic pod. Got to find, then, gents. Got to find the benefits. Got to find the benefits. You know, I'm going to be enjoying lots of homegrown cauliflowers and cabbages very soon. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I think we did schedule about 25 seconds of talking about all the good things that happened in 2020, didn't we? What about the Welsh government, this process? Obviously, they've been sidelined a little bit, obviously, and especially since March, the primary focus of the Welsh government has been on dealing with coronavirus and that public health crisis and all the economic fallout of that. But how well do you think the Welsh government were doing with Brexit and that, and that transition period prior to coronavirus? I've been quite pleased with where they're going, particularly on uh, the way Jeremy Miles has handled it, what he's talked us through on our pods previously, puts Welsh government in quite a 
quite a strong position in saying how they're reacting to the Brexit position. They're obviously out of the the loop. So much of the Brexit-related issues are at a UK level. So there's very little really Welsh government can do in that regard. But Jeremy has shown a, a safe pair of hands. The response to the bill, which, you know, seeks to take away the powers you alluded to, Matt, I think Welsh government is the only way they could have handled that. But when we talk about Brexit in Wales, you know, from our position, I think we're all of a similar mind. But we do have to reflect on the fact that, you know, Wales did vote for Brexit. And we don't want to get into the argument of who, why, what and where. But it's a difficult line for, I think, the government to, to tread. So in, in with that kind of position behind them, I, I think they have handled it quite well. But it's not really in their gift to deal with many of the major issues. So it's, it's, it's a hard one to really see what more they could do. There are certainly bright lights in the Welsh Government. And, you know, as you've said, Kerry, Jeremy Miles came on, was very gracious with his time. And he continues to be um, one of the the best prospects for the I think the future of not just the Welsh government but the Senate I think he's obviously one of the most talented people there and has a great command of the detail but hamstrung entirely by their steadfastness in following the rules of what devolution was set up to do and an unwillingness to break with the um, commitment to the union in the same way that the Scottish government is I think it's very difficult to see a good future for any Welsh government completely subsumed by the legislation that the UK government puts in place. Sorry, Bleak. I'm glad I joined you both tonight, gents. What what about your take, Matt? I know you've done a lot of our research on the internal markets bill for the pods and uh, things like that. How how do you think it's been handled from a a Welsh perspective? Uh, I mean, Welsh government have done pretty well, I think. I think there's a there's a good amount of agreement in the Senedd, whether it be Plaid and Labour and David Melding and Chrissy Williams, who have all seemed to agree that it's rubbish and should be destroyed, burn it in the fire. But it's done now. It, it will get its assent and it will become law. And we'll have to see what happens with the legal challenge from the Welsh government. It's a, as a piece of primary legislation. It's it's going to be really hard to challenge that in the Supreme Court. Uh, these weird amendments that the UK government have put in to say, oh, don't worry, we'll consult you. They've all got bits and clauses in them, which basically say, if we can't get an agreement, we'll just go ahead and do what we want to do anyway. So they will just eventually, if they can't find common ground with the devolved government, which they almost certainly won't because the UK government want a race to the bottom, then we will be forced to follow that race to the bottom. And we will see our standards slashed and burned by a government that don't care about what we have to say. So I am deeply worried that you'll end up with devolution in name only. I really hope that the Welsh government is successful and can find a way to overturn the internal market bill, because if not, you've got to have at least another three years, and that's predicated on Labour being able to win an election in 2024, at least three years of them riding complete roughshod over whatever the Welsh government decided to do, whichever party wins next year. But wouldn't we, wouldn't we then look at this as probably the greatest opportunity for our biggest issue on the pod this year has been the emergence growth of the call for independence for Wales. We're looking at what Scotland have done, you know, that's been some of our most interesting pods and where we're going for independence for the Celtic nations. Um, And even talking of regionalization, federalism of England. There has undoubtedly been a growth in support in in Wales overall and in 
the Labour Party for independence, for more self-determination, to avoid things like the internal market bill during the summer months, looking at the way the Welsh government handled coronavirus as being distinctly better than the English government. And that has been one of the reasons why people have gone, no, I think we want independence now. But I don't see how it becomes reality. I don't see how you get from where we are now to, to an independence referendum. If you look at what UK Labour are calling for today, after Keir Starmer's speech on devolution and the Constitutional Convention, I don't see how you get from where they are there to saying eventually Welsh Labour will have a policy of we want an independence referendum. I can't, I think it's very hard to see how that happens unless Welsh Labour were to become a distinct political party to the UK Labour, like a sister party. I don't see how that would become our policy, would become Welsh Labour's policy. And I don't see Clyde taking a massive step forward. If you look at all the polling on independence, there's no equivalent movement up the polls for Plaid. They stay, they stay where they are. And they're going to be really careful not to go backwards from where they were in 2016 rather than going forwards. So, I, yes, whilst there are more people who support independence in a pure numerical sense in polling, I don't see how you get from where we are now to that I, end point. I suppose for me, it was taking it as a step-by-step looking at the, the future flow of things. So I, I think the SNP will increase their majority in Edinburgh next May, and that will be an endorsement for a referendum early in that term of government. And I, I just don't see any way with any of the current big issues that would stop Scotland going independent. Do, do either of you see that any, any other scenario? No, I think that there's a reason why the Conservatives and Labour both say, no, we won't give you one. Because they know in their heart of hearts that if it happened, they'd lose. Keir Starmer today, when he was talking about the positive case for the union, most of the people I spoke to today, when, he, when asking about his positive case for the union, didn't have a clue what he was talking about, about making a positive case for the union. To us, there was no positive case for the union. It was built on the same platitudes and ineptitudes that had been echoed for all time by uh, unionist politicians. And it's inevitable that if Scotland gets a referendum, I think it will vote yes. That leads on to where is Wales when that happens. And, you know, you're right. I don't, I don't know where Wales would go with it. But I think that will change the dynamic of the views of a lot of Welsh politicians who currently aren't going down that indie route in any kind of meaningful sense. I think their views, if Scotland go, we should talk, mention Ireland and Northern Ireland. I think that's going to, this decade as well, where does that leave Wales? Will, will attitudes change? Rich, you, you, you must want to contribute here. We're, come on, tell us how you see the next decade flow in with the independence movements. That sounded like a hospital pass, that, Kerry. Um, thanks for that. It feels inevitable that the SNP and the Greens are going to get some kind of majority in, in Holyrood um, next year. And it feels inevitable that whether sanctioned or not by the UK government, there will be a vote uh, called on the future of Scotland. Perhaps in, in keeping with my general tone this evening, maybe I'm just feeling a little bit negative. I have a feeling that the playbook of the UK government might be to let it just sit there and you know slow it down so that the uh, the pro indie movement sort of splinters between those who want to do things through the you know legally accepted process of doing it so that 
then it also pushes those who just want to do it unilaterally you know kind of go off and it comes becomes a sort of internecine warfare between the those in the yes camp and then you know divide and rule that's the uh, the uk government's you know, a history of behavior and i think that that's that's pretty much the only way that they can get out of it right now because there is no one making a positive case for the union and i think the thing to do with that and we did touch on this in some of our pods this year is that the positive case isn't one of narrative it's not one of brand it's not one of sentiment it's not one of iconography it's one of actually doing um, and the reason why so many Scots want to leave the union, uh, so many re- you know, so many a growing number of people in Wales, and apparently the north of England um, uh, want to leave the union, is that it's not working. And the things that would fix it in terms of redistributing not just wealth but power and influence, the ability giving people the ability to genuinely influence what happens in the regional. Um, context in which they live uh, the UK government is not willing to give that up I mean it's not willing to give that up to Wales and Scotland as they stand at the moment as in, a, in the devolution model in fact they're taking it away and so what chance this UK government would ever actually consider doing that and and therein is the problem and exactly the same problem came up with Keir Starmer today in that you know as you said Matt that it felt more like platitudes and some kind of very strange imagined realities I mean the idea that Britain is great because it abolished slavery, you know, in inverted commas, after having profited off slavery for two centuries, you know, and created the biggest slave network in the world, the world has ever seen, you know, as some kind of pro-British sentiment. I mean, it just seemed like such a tone-deaf tone speech. And, you know, the, the, if there is a, such a thing as a saviour of, you know, if, you're, if you are a committed unionist, if there's such a thing that... Uh, is going to keep Scotland within the union in the long term. It is not going to come dressed like Keir Starmer or Boris Johnson. It's going to come, you know, in the form of a genuine, deep-rooted reanalysis of what the union is for. In fact, what in our previous pod, McAntony called the first principles discussion. What is the union for? Is it even for anything? Have that conversation, and then you build up from the ground up. And it's very much, you know, the kind of uh, discussion that Lord Salisbury was trying to drive forward with the new Act of Union bill. And, you know, I consider myself, you know, a, a union sceptic person, you know, having, you know, lived in Wales almost my entire life and seen, you know, quite how little the United Kingdom does for um, people in uh, in this area. I've always found myself on the side of the fence thinking, actually, it would be quite nice to, as again, quote a former guest, Harriet said in the last episode, to rupture some of those structures of power that are you know, reinforcing uh, an unhealthy dynamic within the UK. But it is not, say, it's not possible to do. You know, uh, I hesitate very much to raise the spectre of Tony Blair. But in the late 1990s, the ambition of devolution, whether it was matched in the actual delivery of it, was there to do something there was at least a big vision and people bought into it thinking you know at least in wales and scotland where and northern ireland you know bought into it thinking it would do a good thing now i not everyone agrees but i think generally speaking devolution has been a very good thing and it has empowered people it has done out done exactly what it was meant to do which is to give people in the territories that had a devolved government a sense of control and power and an actual control of power over their lives and the problem is now that the UK government finds out that actually doesn't really want that and the most telling thing that Keir Starmer said today which you know really did make me feel you know more or less as you as you do Matt was that he kept talking about devolution and we've had a number of guests some of them government ministers um, on this podcast over the last eight months 
and they have said that the era of devolution is over and we need to move to something more than devolution if if the union is going to survive and thrive in the future and the fact that Keir Starmer seems to be stuck in the devo rut not just for Wales and Scotland but for parts of England however they plan on approaching that just seems it, it seems um, stuck in stasis. I mean, it's being led by Gordon Brown, you know, bringing with him the mindset of the mid-1990s. Um, and I just don't think that's right. And it, it is the tragedy of the Welsh Government that they're the only people that both care about the future of the union and want the union to work better and have put plans in place, suggested proposals to make the UK, the UK work better. And yet they're the one that don't even get quoted by their own party leader when talking about the future of the union. It's just a tragedy and it kind of leads to the inevitable consequence, which is, you know, Scotland is going to plough its own furrow. England under the UK government is going to plough its own furrow. And Wales arguably is going to get caught up in the you know, in the tailwinds of whatever happens. And um, I think that the challenge, you know, so many challenges for which the Welsh government, this Welsh government and previous Welsh governments are directly responsible in terms of making the case for Welsh self-government. They keep talking about defending devolution. Now, as someone who has had the pleasure of knocking many uh, a door in the area that I live, um, nobody cares about devolution. Nobody cares. People care about healthcare. People care about education. Nobody cares about devolution. The idea that you're going to get some kind of mass popular support by saying, if we don't do something, devolution will go. The case has to be framed differently, as does the case for independence, I think, in, you know, to, to reflect on what you said, Kerry. Just independence, for its own sake, is not going to be a winning argument, if that's what you believe in. As we, you know, as we touched on in the last pod with um, Mick Antoniv and um, Ben and Harriet, I think Mick was asking some very good questions. What does the independence campaign even mean? Um, and that, that hasn't been answered on a cross-party basis either. So, you know, we're in a mess um, and I think we're vulnerable and those who have a clear-eyed vision of the future in both Edinburgh and Westminster um, are probably going to be setting the pace and we'll be trying to catch up with one or t'other. So to quote former Welsh Government Minister, Alan Davis, uh, he said that Keir ignored Wales in his speech today. Uh, Wales was mentioned five times, four of those merely in a list with England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. The other time was to mention that Anira Thomas, the first baby born under the NHS, was born in Wales. And the phrase Welsh appears once. And not in, not Welsh government, but merely to denote that Keir Hardy was elected in Merthyr, a Welsh constituency. So the only place in which Labour is in power in the whole of the UK, apart from outside the metro mayors and London, is Wales, obviously, as we know, and we didn't even get a mention. Nothing about the benefits of what devolved government can do, nothing about the benefits of what bringing power closer to home can mean for people. A lot of people have said to me that it felt like a speech for Middle England rather than a speech to try and win Scotland over, even though that was on the face of it, what he's trying to do. But it, I think they'll get laughed at. I think if you take this to Scotland saying, oh, we want more devolution, they'll laugh at you. Because in 2014, when the vow was made and Scottish voters were promised Devo Max, they've not got Devo Max now. Why on earth would they believe uh, Gordon Brown again, strangely enough, who is leading this uh, inquiry? Why would they believe him? So I don't know who the speech was for. It was almost like, don't worry, we're not going to change too much. And, and the problem is, in, even in its structure, yeah, Gordon Brown, fine. You, there's arguably no one better who could have done it, really, in terms of 
all the connections and the knowledge he's got about it from Scotland, etc. But by the way we're doing this, I think there's no overarching constitutional theory about what they're trying to do. It's all piecemeal. It's like everything that's happened to devolution in the past. It's just an on the hock. We don't really care what happens. We've just got to shut some people up. And that's what this felt like today. We, oh, we're just trying to shut the Scots up, trying to shut the Welsh up. And there's a lot of people in Welsh Labour and Scottish Labour. If you look at the most recent statistics, it's something like 33% of Scottish Labour voters want independence. It's up to 52% in some polls in Wales of Welsh Labour voters who want an independent Wales. And I don't know what happened today that would have made any of them feel more comfortable that Labour is listening to their concerns. It's not about radical change. It's about piecemeal clusters over wounds that we don't know how to heal. That's what really worries me, is they're just going, oh, a bit of devolution will make people vote for us again. But I, but I don't think it will. Is it, was anything said which kind of bring UK, England, Labour closer together? Or was all those cracks between the Corbyn and Starmer and the various factions in Labour, this, this subject isn't one to bring them together? I don't think so. I think it was an acknowledgement that the route to power for UK Labour is much harder, if not impossible, without Scotland. And thinking that most of the people who vote SNP were at one time Labour voters. There's maybe aspects of the speech that were designed to appease those in the North who are concerned that people like Andy Burnham were overruled and ignored by the UK government with regards to the coronavirus tier payments. Because he mentioned regions, which I, I think we've learned from... Never, never. Our, our, our guests on our future England pod, Alex Niven and John Denham, but regions aren't really a thing in England. They don't really, con they're not completely, you know, um, a complete identity. People won't really respond well to them being used as administrative or, or legislative boundaries. So I, I, I don't know, this, this is what I was saying, I don't know who it's for. It's almost like it's sort of like, oh, we'll chuck a bit of regionalism in, we'll chuck a bit of localism in, we'll do a bit of the city deal stuff, a bit of the metro mayor stuff. And again, this is one of the things, they're going to end up, if they do it, if, if, if everything goes well, Labour wins a majority in 2024 and it enacts what this uh, document says, you're just going to end up with a really weird asymmetrical situation that no one really wants because I don't think England wants to be broken up I think there's real dangers to the union if England gets its own parliament I think that parliament immediately becomes more important in the eyes of the Westminster media than a UK parliament would because it's the representative body for the biggest part of the population so you can't you can't really have an English parliament what do you offer Scotland you'd have to offer them basically full confederalism minus maybe the currency and defence, maybe, to make them think, oh, that's maybe worth doing. But why would they see the position they're in? They're at next, nearly 60% in the polls in support of independence. I, this, I, I just don't know who this speech was for. It was almost like he felt obligated prior to Christmas to be like, don't worry, we're thinking about Scotland, given that that election is five months away. I shrugged for everyone who doesn't understand how a, <laughs> an audio uh, medium isn't very good for body language. Yep. Well, I mean, I'm surprised that, you know, it was just a shrug. I mean, I, I, I imagine that if I was a member of the Labour Party, I would have been absolutely livid because essentially he gave up on Scotland in that speech. There was nothing there to, for, you know, to try and turn the tide in Scotland. I think that the question that I would have, and, you know, we did raise this with a number of guests, and I think, you know, 
particularly Lee Waters and a couple of others really engaged with it, is that avoidance of talking about what the United Kingdom is for is exactly the same conversation that the Labour Party is avoiding having with itself. What is the Labour Party for? Hear this uh, adage trotted out all the time that the concerns of a working man in Shenashia are the same as in Leith or in Lincoln. And, and I, I hear that and I, I think to myself, well, it's the same of a working man in Limerick or in Lille or, you know, uh, somewhere else beginning with Liberia. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, the, the idea that the, the Labour Party should be concerned with national borders and, you know, national territories, it's always, it always surprises me because Ireland was part of the United Kingdom. Ireland left the United Kingdom. Ireland still has a Labour Party, which still, you know, makes the same class-based arguments that it always has done and did a very good job getting the Twitter handle before anybody else did as well, which I thought was quite savvy. Uh, you know, a, an independent Scotland would have a Labour Party. I think a, quite a what, successful one. Probably a very successful one, because a lot of those people would come home, because the problem isn't that they hate the Labour Party. The problem is that they hate the United Kingdom. And I think the United Kingdom has given them plenty of cause to hate the United Kingdom, if you're a Scottish voter right now. So I don't understand what the purpose of the Labour Party is in terms of, I mean, it's almost like it's perpetually stuck in trying to hide the fact that it is a pretty hardcore unionist party, not you know, many miles away from what the Conservative Party is. But it can't say that because it understands that that would go against its, you know, directly oppose its criticisms of those groups and parties um, that, you know, wish to change the relationship with the union and the rest of Britain. It's almost like, what, why is the UK, or why is the UK or British Labour Party, whatever it is, suffering from the same problem of over-centralisation and lack of either regional or national um, federalism or federation that the UK is? I mean, the, the, the one mirrors the other, and they're both deeply problematic for the Labour Party. And, you know, if the Scottish Labour Party was fully autonomous, maybe it would support independence. You know, who knows? In fact, so many of the trade unions in Scotland already do. If the Welsh Labour Party was autonomous, then it wouldn't be a whipping boy for Boris Johnson in uh, Westminster, because, or whomever the Conservative leader is in Westminster, because Keir Starmer could say, well, that's not my party, that's a sister party. You know, if you can't get your own house in order as a political party, how do you expect to sell the same solution to you know a state which is really you know stretching at the seams and it just seems so self-defeating and i can imagine why there are so many vested interests who don't want to see any true either true power go from the political center of westminster out to outside of that that would really challenge it and the political heart of the labor party which is in westminster no matter what anybody says to to elsewhere because there's no doubt the fact that the plp the Welsh contingent in the PLP uh, would have been far happier with the content of that speech than the Welsh government, which is a Labour-led government in Wales. And, and, you know, that just seems bananas to me. Um, and I just don't understand why, why it is self, self-defeating itself on the matter of um, federalism or the future of the UK when there is an open goal there, you know, to be had, if for the party that wants it. And I, I mean that by whichever party gets hold of England, be that Farage's party, be it the Tories, be it Labour, be it the Lib Dems, you know, whoever addresses the problem of England first wins England. And, and, you know, the fact that the Labour Party refuses to do that just blows my mind. Well, I'm not going to say much on that topic, unsurprisingly, apart from to say, I think a really good place to start would have been the Welsh government's reforming our union. That is a very 
uh, interesting document. And although I don't agree with everything in it, it has an overarching theory of governance and the constitution to it, especially looking at the way that sovereignty must be divided between Westminster and the devolved governments. I think that is that is the starting point if you're in the Labour Party looking to reform the UK. And, and it's there. It's it's on a table. You know, pick it up, use it. I mean, this is I'm, I cannot believe how deeply frustrating it must be to be a Welsh government minister, to have done the work, to have a proposal on the table, which, as you say, is imperfect, but at least coherent. And, you know, meanwhile, they just keep, you know, floundering around and saying, oh, we'll have a constitutional convention, we'll have citizens' assemblies. And I did particularly enjoy citizens' assemblies being described as, you know, a mechanism for people to, to avoid having to make any decisions. I think that was Alan Davis on Twitter again. And, you know, he's quite right. You know, what, this doesn't need consultation. This needs leadership. It needs someone to actually put the proposal on. And it's quite obvious why they don't want to do it. And, and it's almost like they don't understand how obvious it is. Who I can't remember which one of our guests, it may have been Alex Niven, or no, it was John Denham was talking about, you know, the, the play to England and English constituencies is, is key to, you know, a future Westminster Labour government. And they can't say that they're going to give the Scots any more because, you know, there's an awful lot of bitterness about the, or a sensation that the Scots already get a lot. I mean, the same is true, ironically, of the Welsh. It's an impossible bind unless you have you know, some kind of, exactly as you said, Matt, a thesis of the case. What is the constitution? First principle, what is the UK? What is it for? Is it for anything? Um, and it's so baffling to have a party that is so contingent on the UK holding together to have any chance of governing again uh, in Westminster, to be so willfully blind about the solutions about how to go about you know, doing that again. And the idea that they can just wait it out. And I think um, Liz Savile-Roberts, mentioned this in, on Nation Cymru uh, earlier in the week when talking about the Internal Market Bill, the idea that the Labour Party would abstain on a vote protecting the rights of devolved legislatures in face of the attacks of the Internal Market Bill, with the hope that at some point it would you be able to use it to curtail the power of a future separatist Scottish government. I mean, if that is the case, and you know, admittedly that's probably not the full case because it's written by a applied MP, but it's a cell phone, it's a political cell phone on a massive scale by the Labour Party. And when they have the keys, you know, keys to the car, like you say, in the Welsh government, and they just steadfastly refuse to even acknowledge its existence, let alone, you know, kind of take it for a ride. I mean, it's just bonkers, utterly bonkers. But a huge opportunity for the Green Party, though, you've got to say. The newly indie-supporting Greens, Kerry. Not so newly. It was always there, gentlemen. People need to understand the policies that are out there for all to see. Let's move on to the, the, the big topic of the year, because I, I, th I think it's linked. You know, it's uh, Welsh government, COVID, the levers it's got available to it. It's linked to independence, devolution. How, how do we think that's been handled in Wales so far, Rich? Pretty much as badly as it has been elsewhere in the UK. Over to you, Matt. Thank you, sir, for one of your uh, speciality hospital passes. Um, no, I think it's been okay. It's been okay, uh, comparatively. Uh, to why don't we, to, why don't we... to our big next door neighbour, but if you look at globally, it's not fantastic, is it? The, it's the other countries that have basically got rid of COVID. But again, a lot of this boils down into what the Welsh government can actually do. I'm sure that if the Welsh government had more economic levers available to it, it would have locked down faster and harder to begin with, and not left us in a situation where we are sort of waiting, hoping that the UK government have to lock down England so we'll get some money to back our businesses. 
that is that that and that's what I that's why I think it's linked. I think it shows the levers devolution the gives to the devolved nations aren't enough for this type of scenario. And when we talk about what the union is for, and we had a very helpful letter recently, I think, didn't we, off Simon Hart telling us that well English hospitals will still be available to Welsh patients, you know, that's very that is good of the union, that is um to be admired. I, I think the Welsh government in the first, so we say the first six months of COVID were one of the leading administrations in the UK on how they handled it. So we call it through to the autumn. I think the Welsh government approach, the three weekly review, the restrictions it put in place, I think it was seen widely in Wales and outside Wales as a not an exemplar, but as a leading approach to handling COVID in the UK. But then, of course, we come to the autumn and it's, I'd say, be a slightly different story. But is that because of the the lack of those economic levers, particularly the ability to borrow and provide that financial package? Or has it been, and it has appeared at times, just to be a desperate look for a solution for the problems which we seem to be uniquely facing at times in Wales? You were... Um... A little bit, I don't want to say hard, because I, I think in hindsight it, it may look fair, but you were a bit critical of, of the Welsh Government for the firebreak lockdown, not doing it in the first place, but for not having it be longer, weren't you, Kerry? I, I was a commentator that suggested that I would have liked um, the firebreak to have gone on longer. I, th- I thought the figures as we went into firebreak suggested it needed to be longer than 17 days, and... As I just mentioned, the approach in the spring, the three-week period and a review, I thought that was a really admirable approach which people understood and could believe in. And then we had our fire break and then we came out of it and we were going to come out of it, come what may. I just think the data, and it didn't have an awful lot of data, but what you what was available suggested to me, we didn't get the numbers down low enough to stop the spread didn't give time for track and trace to get in place. So the inevitable upturn, which happened eight, ten days later, for me was just, I, I didn't understand, I don't understand why that wasn't the view in government. As soon as it became apparent that the UK government were going to have a lockdown of their own and were therefore going to be able to provide financial support to the Welsh government, do you think it was wrong of the Welsh government to say that no matter what, they were ending their firebreak when they were? Yeah, I, I, totally. And I, I think the decision on Saturday has just shown us that when they needed to make decisions on evidence, it doesn't matter what, what's in place, you make those decisions. I, I don't want to be someone on a podcast criticising people making incredibly difficult decisions, but I, I think that option was there and it was one we should have taken. I mean, calling back to one of our first pods, and exactly as you've just mentioned, Kerry, I think the um, it was our first multi-guest, Mark Cooper, um, uh, that said that one of the core problems with the devolution setup is that you have no access to what is the Bank of England, and it is very firmly the Bank of England. And if it was the Bank of the UK, and all of the governments could, you know, um, engage to a certain degree within whatever limits of monetary policy that they could they could manage um, or or need, then they would be able to do different things. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that the Welsh government would have been more cautious with COVID if it could have afforded it. But the problem is that the Welsh government is caught between a rock and a hard place there because you, 
you can't unless you can offer to reimburse people financially for putting them in financial hardship then you are well you're basically punishing people you know i was a bit glib earlier but i i do recognize that they went on a hell of a learning curve they were and i remember carrie you criticizing them very harshly for the first few weeks we know the uh, what was it the wales scotland rugby game the stereophonics gig they were late you know kind of reacting as was just in the same way that boris johnson was late I mean, they were faster in responding than he was i, I just they, like to say I, I don't think that was harsh to be honest i i, I think the call to cancel those that those large-scale activities should have come from government and forget the scotland wales game wasn't called by government it was called by the wru I don't think that's harsh to say that. I think that is where government needs to lead. All all those expletives I had to cut off the podcast, Kerry. Um, you know, I remember how harsh you were really at the time. No, it was you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the Welsh government was slow, and frankly, it is no surprise to anyone to talk about the fact that the Welsh government is still a relatively nascent organisation, and they just weren't ready. They weren't able to handle the, this kind of catastrophe. If we thought foot and mouth was awful back in the late 2000s this is a whole other ball game and they got up to speed quickly i mean what i don't understand is what and we talked about this on the firebreak friday episode that we recorded is what the end result of that firebreak was i mean it was never clear entirely at the time get the r rate down but as soon as you know as soon as you lift restrictions that the r rate is going to go up again so what was the long-term aim of the firebreak was it to keep the r rate bobbing up and down until such point as you hit a vaccine that we know what the answer was to COVID. And, you know, as an island, you know, living on a tiny little island on the edge of the Atlantic, we should have been able to go for complete eradication. And you know, the fact that the UK government was not even willing to comprehend that, you know, wasn't even, you know, didn't even close airport from airports for months, did it? It was pretty awful. The fact that the UK government didn't do that and the fact that the Welsh government nor the Scottish government could influence it. And in fact, you know, as we're all well aware by now, the, the terrible press that the Welsh government and the Scottish government had in England for closing the border to try and reduce travel, it just, again, totally reflects the awful situation that we are and how the constitutional problem uh, is, the, is the rot at the core of so many problems of governance on the island. And um, I would like to think, um, although it'd be really interesting to ask them, you know, if they'd had unilateral power, if they'd had the money, uh, uh, the control over a central bank, if they'd had you know, complete control over all of the infrastructure in Wales, what would have Welsh government have done? And maybe we'll have to wait until Mark Drakeford retires to ask him that question. But it would be really interesting to know. But the fact that none of the UK's governments publicly championed an eradication strategy was always going to mean that we're going to end up in this situation. Because, you know, as we know, over in on the Antipodes right now, New Zealand and Australia are enjoying party time, and a pandemic, what pandemic? And, you know, well, I, I feel... Yes, you you will definitely. note that in the North Shore of Sydney, they're currently in lockdown, and uh, New South Wales is very much similar to South Wales in that mm. its borders have been closed to the rest of Australia today. So, I, I I haven't caught up today, but I think that part of Sydney's gone into a hard lockdown on eighty three confirmed cases. It makes it a little bit different to how we've handled it. And as I've bored you both before, you know. I've looked at uh, the Australian model, particularly Melbourne, Victoria, and how they have gone down that eradication policy. It was a 110-day lockdown to eradicate it in that area, and that's why they're closing borders to New South Wales now to keep it so that they are 
virus free. Is it working, Kerry? I think that's the question. Is the eradication, because obviously it's worked on New Zealand, but Australia is a far bigger um, landmass. Australia was virus free, and the latest outbreak, I think, has been attributed to a cabin crew member from the United States. You know, while you've got access to these places, and of course we need that kind of travel in one way or another, you're always going to have that risk of having those um, people bringing that the virus in. And until we get some kind of fast test, I think they are emerging now of a 20 minutes, half hour test, you know, it's going to be difficult. So what, what do we think around the, some of the latest decisions on the rules and regulations in Wales, where Wales has a blanket tier approach? Do you think there are opportunities to give other areas of Wales with low rates a little bit more freedom? Could we have put Anglesey in a, in a state of freedom with barricades on the Britannia Bridge? Well, uh, we've got a couple of former guests, haven't we, who have quite vocal about this. Jim Jones and um, Emma Wild-Hale have been quite vocal in the past on how we should adopt a more regional approach. I mean, yeah, I can see the argument for it, but the danger, of course, is that Wales isn't really, you know, our county borders are not really like national borders. That if you, if you live in the north bit of Caerphilly, you could be in Cardiff in a couple of minutes. If you live in the north bit of you know, live in bits of Cardiff, you're in Pontypris very, very quickly. Um, you live in Newport, you're in Monmouth pretty much instantaneously. How, how, do you, how do you manage that? Because people will travel between those borders. They will go shopping in a different local authority area. They will go visit family and friends in a local area. And once you're in that area, how many times are the police pulling you over to see, oh, are you from here or are you from here? Are you local or are you from a slightly different local authority, you know? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't help that we have one of the least coherent setups, territorial setups of local government anywhere in the Western world. You know, we just had this insane situation that was dreamt up in a John Redwood-esque fever dream that he'd somehow managed to squeeze more conservative councillors out of Wales. It's utterly bonkers. And it brings in incoherence. The idea of doing it in all Wales, at least it's vaguely coherent. But it's, an, it's like you said, Kerry, I think it's perfectly fair to criticise, but also you have to acknowledge that it's been a thankless task and it's been... Um, one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult thing that any of our politicians will have done in their lifetime. So can't be too harsh on them. But I don't, I don't think we've had the kind of leadership that we would have needed to be in a better place than we are right now, um, despite the, the many good things that Mark Drakeford and Nicola Sturgeon have done. What do you think about the Christmas lockdown and the cancelling it uh, at such late notice? Sort of led to scenes of people trying to flee London out of the major train stations the other day. Do you think they were right to do it at such short notice or that bit in particular? I think all three of us are, are broadly in favour of the restrictions, the additional restrictions at Christmas that have been placed on us. But do you think that aspect of it was wise? It was the right thing to do. Absolutely the right thing to do. Is it, you know, but the, 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 what wasn't right was for Boris Johnson to be spending the whole week beforehand claiming that Keir Starmer was the Scrooge trying to steal Christmas. And then suddenly when he finds himself, you know, having to do it, it basically completely undermines public trust in the whole messaging. And that's what happens if you treat governing like a game. You know, it's stupid. It's unhelpful. You be like a grown-up when you're the Prime Minister and be like a grown-up when you're in the Cabinet and just deal with the world as it is and people will thank you for that in the least glamorous way possible. They're not going to, you know, line the streets in adulatory applause for you. 
but they won't hate you. And the problem is <laughs> a lot of people hate the kind of people that you can see and not doing their jobs properly and aren't taking it seriously. And I, I really know that the problem wasn't the change of policy because when the situation changed, you have to change your policy. The problem was the quite frankly infantile behavior of the UK government saying that um, those who were being more cautious were being scaremongers and, you know, being Grinches and whatnot. And that's just unhelpful and stupid. Uh, uh, I know. I, I think it was also quite nice to see the four nations in inverted commas approach return. I think that made it feel more coherent and helpful. And that was a good thing. It was good to see, um, uh, despite the fact that you get the feeling that it wasn't done on the, ma on the basis of parity. I think it was at least good to see coordination because on a tiny island, we've got three governments and they should coordinate on matters of public health. Lots of Welsh uh, Conservative MSs and MPs ready with their pitchforks, though, for Mark Drakeford as soon as an announcement that some changes to the rules were going to occur only to have to backtrack uh, a few hours later when Boris came out I think I refer you to my e earlier comment about being grown-ups <laughs> Gary what about you I, I think you'll as you're fully aware of the criticism or what I'd call is support for government to do the right thing approach in the last few weeks I, I thought the Welsh figures the last few three weeks have been atrocious and it put any kind of idea of Christmas relaxation to me couldn't understand why we weren't addressing that earlier. Um, and I think Wales, certainly parts of Wales, because I've got some sympathy for not locking down the whole nation. We, we should have been looking at lockdowns and not, you know, the piecemeal, the, the public houses, the hospitality sector, and then schools. I, I think we could have done things differently. But as Rich said, these are incredibly difficult times the welsh government have been talking a lot about trust and putting the onus on the public and taking responsibility and i think that's fair i think that's fair all the way along but i think there's elements of the public which will do the right thing and don't need much communication they know what to do and then there's elements of society that won't so this idea about trust has been something which doesn't really ring true to me the government's got to do what it thinks is right as a government and do that when it has to do that giving people six hours notice to do some of the the things they might want it to do I, I just think a lot of people would have lost any of that trust but they've been so desperate to keep since the fire break shall we end as we began our podcast series all those months ago by talking very, very briefly about the Senate elections. I mean, the last time we all, all were together in a, a pod, just the three of us, we made some predictions about what we think the results were going to be in May. Has anyone's mind changed from that prediction they made a few months ago? Or, or do you think uh, you were right then and you'll be right in May? I'm not so sure on Kirsty anymore. I think there'll be a new face in Brecon and Radnor. And I do think it'll stay Liberal Democrat. So not a lot of change for, for me, really. There's still a lot to play. I think Brexit, the stuff, the issues we've talked about tonight, Brexit, COVID, independence, are still going to be, you know, the big ticket items come May and all the intricacies linked to them around economy, agriculture, the wider health and social care. Not a lot has changed for me. I, th I think Plaid could be the bigger winners over the year in terms of, they haven't had to really lead any of the tricky items. So Brexit, Plaid haven't had to lead on that. The Conservatives will fall down on that. COVID, 
Conservatives and Labour have had difficult times with that supply. But the nature of our political setup, the proportional representation, I don't think there'll be huge changes. So I think earlier in the year, I had Labour as the largest party needing to work with someone to form a government. I think there will be a Lib Dem to work with, but probably just the one. Not a lot of change, maybe a, the odd seat here or there. Very quickly go around the different elections, because of course we've got loads of elections next year. I think we're, we are going to see a stonking majority for SNP government in, um, West, in Holyrood and um, supported by the Greens, I think enough of a supermajority to make whatever constitutional change happen that they want up in Scotland. I think England is going to continue to be uh, bifurcated on the rural conservative and labor urban vote um, i think that you know, labor is going to start making some headway back in the north of england because i think keir starmer is doing what he needs to do to win back the labor vote in the north of england uh, on a slow and steady progress i think here in wales of course the most important election is the pcc election um you know we're all on tenter hooks to see what that that is that result is going to be and i think we're going to see i think we're going to see uh, two plied and one Labour and one uh, Conservative uh, for the PCC. <laughs> and in the Senate... Where do you think the Conservative one will be? I, I think, um, well... Mid and West Wales? No, I think that's going to be David. I think David Huellen will keep that. I think I think the southeast corner of Wales... Gwent. Mm-hmm. Gwent is going to be the big red to blue story of Senate, of elections 2021. And looking at the... Um, the pressure that the Conservatives are going to put on there, not just obviously in um, in terms of the Senate election, but because the PCC election is on the same day, I think we're going to see a lot of push for Conservatives. And actually, there's a really strong potential voter base for the Conservatives in in the South East. And uh, yeah, I think, I, you know, I'd say Gwent is the one that's most likely to go Tory. Um, and I think a Labour, um, uh, a Labour PCC for South Wales Police, and the Senate vote itself. I think the you know you guys have covered it already. I think larger story is a three-way split. I think that the as the year has gone on, and despite everything that would suggest to the contrary, I think that the Conservative vote is going to be higher than most people would have expected. Um, and of course, that's dependent on you know the, the fringe parties, the fringe right-wing parties. Um, but my gut tells me that it's inching closer to what I would probably consider the best outcome of next year's election, which would be a um, some kind of formal agreement between Plaid and Labour. Plaid, I think, I, I, I don't think that the drive to independence is going to push them as high as they would like it to. And I think that their alternative offers have not been heard by the electorate in the way that they would like them to either. So I think we're going to see... Um, you know, a, a Labour plied or Labour with some agreement with plied outcome. And I don't necessarily think that that's a terrible thing. But I think the most important thing for them to grapple with um, once the election is over about what the future of democracy looks like in Wales. And I, I would wager another bet that I think we're going to see Senev expansion rapidly rise up the agenda as well as other other connected issues because with the reduction in terms of parliamentary constituencies coming in in 2024 for the UK parliament I think that there is now an electoral incentive for the Labour Party to expand the Senate in a way that there wasn't in this term. How about you Matt? Yeah I can pretty much completely agree with you Rich. Um, I can easily envisage a situation where the Tories take a significant step forwards just because I think the increased notoriety of Mark Drakeford could work 
both in his favour and against him. And, and I don't see Clyde making steps forward. Like I said earlier, I think they may even take steps back because they seem to be going full force for independence. But I don't think the media narrative is strong enough for them to be able to explain to people why. I think that they're going to go into an election in, in a time where we're in deep recession just after one of the most horrific public health crises of all time. And they're going to be talking about the Constitution, which although we do on this pond, we're not a political party trying to, trying to win an election. And they won't have the time to explain to people why they think that independence would be better for them. And to a lot of people, they will just sound like they're not in touch with people. And we're just talking about the Constitution when they should be talking about something else. So, yeah, I think there's a really good chance that it's either a Labour minority, uh, Labour and some sort of compact, or even, depending on, on how many seats Labour end up with, uh, some sort of one Wales two agreement. I think we, we pretty much agree. So in, in addition to the green breakthrough in Cardiff Central, gents, where else would you see the Greens picking up a seat? A particular list vote? Southwell Central is always a good chance, isn't it? Well, that nearly happened in 2011, didn't it, for the Greens picking up a seat. It, I think it really does depend a lot on what happens to that old UKIP vote. If that old UKIP vote goes Tory, you might, it might happen. It might happen. Because... Uh, and if memory serves me correctly, the Libs weren't miles away from a list seat in Southwell Central last time. So, the negativity oh. of the start of the pod has really lifted at the end. This is this is this is good stuff. It depends who you are, Kerry. If you're if you're that lone uh, abolish the assembly candidate at the top of their list in Southwell Central, you're distraught by our prediction that you're not going to be able to win a seat in Southwell Central. Who, who... I'm overjoyed, but uh, they would be distraught. Who, who is at the top of that list? Is it erstwhile Mr. Bennett? Probably, yeah, probably. I could, pro I could probably manage a Senev without Gareth in it, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, Mark Reckless, I think, has got South Wales East, hasn't he? Yeah, he has, yeah. Mm. Anyway, let's talk about something else that's great for 2021, as we're feeling positive right at the end. We'll be uh, podcasting all the way through 2021. One of the highlights for me personally, um, and I'm sure for the Welsh Twitter sphere, has been the <laughs> arrival of the Hiroth uh, podcast. Would, I think it would be nice to say thank you to everyone who's listened and contributed. Um, we've had some really lovely feedback, and um, I'd also like to thank um, everybody who quoted us in various newspaper articles, even if you didn't give us attribution. Uh, it's much appreciated. Uh, yeah, we've got a good slate for next year. So um, particularly, it's going to be exciting times. Um, and I think it wouldn't be surprising to anybody who paid attention while we all uh, collectively cried a million tears on the night of the US election to say that we're working towards a big old alternative uh, live election night coverage uh, in May as well. And I think that's going to be something to really look forward to. You know, in our terrible media landscape in Wales, there are a few bright sparks out there. And I think that we're, we're doing our bit. Yeah, I think we've given a platform to some really interesting debates. Something I wanted was to bring some different voices in. And I think we've done that, not just the big politicians' names we've all heard of. It's up-and-coming people and people on the sidelines in policy who you don't normally hear from. And I think we need that wider voice from civic society in Wales, both to be a critical friend to government, but also to provide them with the trust that they can make hard decisions and there are people who will support those hard decisions. It's been fantastic. It's been so much fun. I just wanted to take this chance to say thank you to everyone who's listened, to everyone who's quoted us and misquoted us. And um, But this has been a, a horrible year for, for so many reasons and for so many people. But 
um, doing this with you and speaking to the guests we've had and meeting all the new listeners we've got has been a, a genuine highlight. So I just want to say uh, thank you to everybody for listening. And the Dolly Clowin, I'll in there with that. See you in the new year. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.